Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Yeah. The charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh-oh. Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello, and welcome to another episode of I Weigh with Jamila Jamil. I hope you're all right. I'm okay. I'm a bit discombobulated because I've gone back to proper work. As in on camera, massive sound stage, 200 members of crew type work. Um, it wasn't 200 members, but they were sort of scattered around this giant production. And so, you know, they kept by all the regulations and I had to have about 15 COVID tests in all of the days coming up to filming. But I feel so odd being out of my house and I really just don't know how to respond to anyone and it feels so weird because everyone's in like hazmat gear and they're just sort of spraying everything you touch and ooh, it's a uh, it's anxiety inducing and also there is just the fear of oh shit do I remember how to do any of this I barely know how to dry my hair anymore because I've just been such a you know dirty little scumbag for uh, for a six or seven glorious months, and I was really getting comfortable in lockdown, and so to now have to go out an adult again just feels terrible. Um, and so I was I was filming this huge show with one of the biggest pop stars in the world, and it was very cool, and it's going to be out in a couple of months. But I walked on and was just so out of place. And just taking everything in and trying to figure out, how am I going to remember how to do this? How am I going to remember how to be on camera? I'm a hermit. This, I mean, these podcasts are really the only thing that I've done. So you guys have been my salvation. You're the only reason I'm still... <laughs> I can't even say the words now. I'm still able to carry a sentence. But um, I walked in and all these people are around and you just feel like you're in outer space. And I'm looking at this pop star and she's sitting beautifully poised on this gorgeous stage. The the decorations are amazing and the stage is enormous. And I don't realize that she's sort of surrounded by a six feet wide and six feet deep entire moat that just goes around her entire stage because obviously that would look very beautiful on camera. But because I wasn't concentrating, because I wasn't thinking, I, uh, in my rush to go over and greet her and my anxiety, I didn't notice that I was about to step into all of the water. And so fully dressed in the only outfit that I had, I, uh, I just stepped straight into the moat and got my entire outfit and self-soaked everything apart from my hair and because I had no other clothes I just had to sit and do the entire filming soaking wet once I had been extracted like a small cat from this sort of pool that was around us so that felt as terrible as humanly possible classic me classic me to be soaking wet uh and just make such a twat out of myself the second I walk in, first big day of work. What a great confidence boost. But yeah, feels odd. So if you too are feeling like you have devolved 
during uh, this pandemic, then you are not alone. I've picked up zero new skills. I have just lost skills, definitely social skills. So we're in this together. We're adaptable. We'll get there in the end. But humaning feels ridiculous. Anyway, so that was my shit week. I uh, am very happy to bring you a chat with one of my favourite humans on the internet. Her name is Rachel Cargill. She is an unbelievable activist and educator and speaker and writer. She is someone who has taught me so much about the experience of black women in America and misogynoir and the true history that we don't read about in our history books of her culture, of that journey over to the United States and what the current systems of aggressions and microaggressions are. I've been following her for maybe three or four years and we've been friends for most of that time. We became friends over Skype after having spent a lot lot of time DMing each other many years ago and she's been a great ally and she's such an example to me of how much women can hold each other up because she and I are supporters of one another and we are there to hear each other out when one of us is going through something because activism is bloody hard and also can be such a weirdly competitive space. So to find other women who recognize what you're going through, who recognize when you are facing hardship or lies or smear campaigns, which both of us are subjected to, especially as women of color, it it's such a relief. She's so cool and just so eloquent and there's something so poetic about the way that she talks and she's just she's just magic and I feel so lucky to be able to have her on this podcast she has all these great resources that you can find online and I really want you to follow her she's called Rachel Cargill so it's just at Rachel Cargill and she's got a bunch of other Instagram accounts that are also education platforms I truly think and I, I feel like this happens so rarely that she's going to be someone who we remember for the rest of time, who we quote forever. She's kind of up there as one of those great thinkers. And so she came on to talk to me so openly about her life, her journey, her existence as a black woman in America, what racism feels like, where white women, and this isn't an attack on white women, uh, but where white women can step up as allies and can be careful of their own internalized misogynoir and be careful of their own microaggressions. This is definitely a learning episode. And we are in no way ever trying to hurt anyone or otherize anyone. We're just trying to make sure that we all have these important and difficult conversations. And we also talk, which I love, uh, about her joyful proclamation that she doesn't wish to be a mother. And she has this Instagram account, which is for women who have decided not to have children. They're just going to be fun aunts to their friends and their relatives' uh, kids and instead spend that money and time on their own adventures. And so you should do whatever you want in this life. But the abundance of joy when she talks about it is just so fun. It's such a great Instagram account. I just can't wait for you to meet her. So I'm going to shut up and just let you listen to the icon herself, Rachel Cargill. It's only Rachel Cargill on my bloody podcast. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Welcome to I Weigh. Thank you. Finally. I know. It's taken us a while. This is a long time in the making. You and I have known each other a while now. I think we're going on two years. 
Did we? Where are we going for our anniversary, Jamila? I know, I know. I mean, we met on the internet, so this is perfect yeah. for us to be doing this over Zoom, although I wish you were here. I would love to hang out with you in person, but um, I believe you and I had some sort of a Skype two years ago, kind of oh, like a first yeah. date. And, uh, that was and our first date, I remember now. <laughs> yeah, we've been in love ever since. <laughs> Rachel, you have been truly one of the most illuminating follows I've ever been lucky enough to stumble upon. I cannot tell you how much I have learned from you, how much inspiration I've drawn from you, how much you have taught not only me, but also so many of my friends. And this is long before the last couple of months where I think millions and millions of people have found your voice. But uh, for years now, you have been a source of pulling no punches, of maintaining such sturdiness in your stance and just being so factual and educational and unlike most people I've ever seen on the internet. So I just want to start off by saying anyone who is not already following Rachel Cargill, do it. Uh, She has about 45 brilliant Instagram accounts, uh, all of which I will list (laughs) (laughs) under this podcast. And uh, and she's just one of the truly wonderful speakers and educators around. Um, Rachel, thank you so much for giving me your time because I know that this is such a- Thank you for that incredible introduction. Please just follow me around. Go in front of me and introduce (laughs) me to people. As I I lay rose petals at your feet. But I'm I'm serious so much of where I draw my, you know, there are times where I get told that I'm too much or I'm, I'm being too uh, brazen or I'm like sticking out too much or I'm not being soft enough in my ability to, not in my ability, in my attempt at holding people to account. I look back to your work and look at the dignity and strength with which you hold your own and it it reaffirms my belief and my own right to stand up for myself. And I think that's why. I hope that's how my work translates to everyone who follows me. I hope that they're able to just see a reflection of standing proud in the ways that people find us abrasive, Mm -hmm. but it really isn't so much abrasiveness, just like you said, holding each other and ourselves and others accountable for how we're all existing together. So I'm so happy to hear that that's how uh, my work translates to you. It gives me hope that it translates to other people that same way. For sure. I, I loved a post that you uh, you put up recently that just said, if my work makes you feel uncomfortable, then good. good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I'm glad. Great. Yeah. I had a successful day then. <laughs> so will you introduce the audience who may not yet be aware of you uh, as to what it is that you do? Yeah, I am a public academic, an author, and an activist. My work really centers um, right now at the intersection of race and womanhood. I've been doing this work for several years now, and it's been a journey of figuring out how I personally exist in the world as someone who is both Black and a woman, and looking at the ways that those two often clash um, or often combined in various forms of social injustice. And so I do my work through writing. A lot of it is on Instagram post. I found social media to be such a powerful platform to teach and to learn and to find community of people who are willing to show up together for things that um, they believe in. And so I do a lot of writing. I'm also, I also do a lot of lecturing. So before the pandemic happened and when we were able to be out in the world, I was a public, I do a lot of public lecturing. So I would go out to places like yoga studios, yoga studios, community centers, church 
churches, um, and even sometimes on college university, on college campuses, in order to um, give lectures that I would develop and teach myself to the public and people who are willing to come and listen and learn alongside me. Um, and so my work just exists in a lot of um, equally creative ways as well as critical ways. And I find um, a lot of value in being able to work in those areas. And one of the areas in which I think your work first stood out to me was your conversation around white feminism specifically. Mm -hmm. And I had not yet seen a lot of conversation around that. It's now something that everyone is talking about and everyone is using a lot of the same language that you've been using for years and talking about doing the work and and reading all of the books and and learning the history and unlearning uh, the things that are toxic and dangerous about our own thinking. Um, But, you know, I think the way that I came up through feminism and I came up through feminism late in life. I was a little toxic misogynist until well into my twenties <laughs> and had no idea. And I, uh, my journey through feminism was kind of just thinking, oh, it's all just women as one. We are a monolith and it's us versus men and men are the only oppressors. Mm. And I had never thought into until I was maybe 26, 27 about the intersections of feminism. I'd never even really separated my own feminism as a woman of colour from that of white women or of black women. In fact, I used to think that my plight was the same as black women because we were of colour, because we shared melanin in our skin. And, and it's only really been much to my embarrassment in the last couple of maybe four or five years that I've understood that there is a stark difference in all of our experiences. And The way that you have uh, developed so many courses and talks around unpacking white feminism is something that is so important. And I, I, to me, it doesn't come across as a way in which you are attacking anyone. I know sometimes you receive very intense pushback and it looks really exhausting online from white women who feel very attacked by your work. But I believe you are just trying to educate people to bring out the best in all of us so we can kind of win this general war against misogyny, but by building each other up at the same time. Um, Will you talk to me a bit about how one would unpack white feminism? Like how, as a white woman who might be listening to this show, what are the first things that they should be looking out for in themselves that they may not have realized before coming across your work? Yeah, well, I came to the conversation specifically of white feminism because I had a photo that went viral after the Women's March. And I that kind of put me into a position where people were interested in hearing my voice about the feminist movement, about my own personal feminism. And as I continued to kind of um, go into these spaces, I recognized that there were so many ways that feminism wasn't taking account um, my blackness and the realities of being a part of the black community in America in particular. And so I started studying and I started learning and unlearning and figuring out all of what I call these murky waters I would have to swim through in order to ever even think that I could get to the island of intersectionality. And those murky waters were full of the ways that black women were dismissed, were undercut, um, even Things like the suffragettes who were working for women to get the right to vote, they made Black women march in the back of the line during their own protest. <sighs> they did things like, um, you know, while they were out campaigning to get the right to vote, they were speaking to the people who had power, the only people who had power at the time, which was white men. Yeah. And, um, you know, 
they're quoted, the the leaders of the suffragettes are quoted saying things like, you know, if you give us the right to vote, we will uphold white supremacy. So they were very aware of what their position was with both race and gender as well. And so when I started to realize all of these things that were hiding underneath our tight pink, needy, like really um, vibrant feminist flag. Yeah. (laughs) Feminist flag. Underneath that were all of these layers of racism and I couldn't ignore it. And the only way that I felt I could move forward is if I began to teach what I was learning. And as I did that, I really built this platform of people who were willing to engage in this very critical conversation in order to create a feminist movement that we could all be a part of and hold value and see the truth of each person and be held accountable for the things that happened in the past. And so that's how I came into the space of white feminism and the ways that I teach it and my expectations of, um, particularly the white women who are learning from me. I teach from a, I teach and do workshops and lecture from a framework of knowledge plus empathy plus action. And mm-hmm. there's really no way that you can show up as an ally to any marginalized group, but particularly in this space of looking at white feminism and how it plays into the race conversation in America without really hearing the voices of Black people. This is how the knowledge part plays in because so much of what we understand about the world is written through the white gaze. It's white authors, it's white teachers, it's whiteness that has given us the lens through which we view the world. Mm -hmm. And until we start getting a lens that looks different than whiteness, we won't have a true understanding of what someone's plight might have been. And so knowledge is the first um, part of this learning experience because you have to start listening and learning from the people that you're hoping to be an ally from. It's not going to be a, you know, Huffington Post article written by a white girl talking about, you know, her black neighbor. You have to be listening directly to black people and learning directly from their experiences to give you the most authentic and true version of what you say you're trying to support. And then the next part is empathy. And this isn't, this is what I call a radical empathy. It's not the type of empathy that says like, oh, I'm so sorry that's happening to you. I see you. I hear you. Love and light. Like it's not that type of um, passive empathy. I call it radical empathy because it's an empathy that both says, I see you and I'm going to hold my myself accountable for how I play into your pain. So it's really causing people to think critically, not just about, not just seeing, oh, that person is hurt, but how did I play a part in how they may be hurting? And this is really important looking at white feminism because a lot of times white women completely dismiss the ways that white womanhood plays into the structural racism, the institutional racism that happens in America because they think that they can't that they don't realize that they can both be oppressed within the patriarchy and the oppressor within the conversation of race. Because if we look back in American history, even the first type of property white women were able to own was black people as slaves. Mm -hmm. That's the first type of property they were able to own. And so there is no way to separate um, the whiteness of being a woman from the horror of what whiteness has done overall. Um, and then the action part and the action part, um, comes into play in a million different ways. There are so many ways that you can show up for the black community. So many ways that you can ensure that the, that the, that your daily, your day to day going about <laughs> isn't going to play into all of these ways that America has racism 
you know, put into the fabric of this country from our school system to our justice system, to the way that things are portrayed in media, to the, you know, wondering what books on your bookshelf. There are so many ways that we can show up in the voting booth, um, in the way that we're raising our children, in the way that we hold our family members accountable at the dining room table. There are all of these things that are actionable items that don't just let the understanding of what's happening in the world sit in your mind, but it plays out in how you move into the world. Um, and the way, and the way that I teach this is that anti-racism work is not self-improvement work for white people. It's not a time for them to feel better about themselves and how they're existing in the world. Anti-racism work is not over until black people's lives are proven to matter, until these systems are completely eradicated that um, are racist in their very nature. And so it's a continuous showing up, a continuous doing the work, continuous way of not just being, in the words of Angela Davis, not just being not racist, but being actively anti-racist. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, you talk about, which I love, the fact that you don't have to have a big platform uh, publicly in order to be an effective uh, activist and, and someone who is effectively anti-racist, will you list the ways in which someone who has maybe 16 followers or no Instagram account whatsoever, how they themselves can participate in anti-racism? Well, I mean, it's in that knowledge. It's getting the knowledge. It's reckoning with yourself with that empathy and mm. then finding ways to show up. If it's calling someone out, if it's um, how you need to vote, if it's... Um, your family members. You know, if it's your family your calling school, out your family your members. Yeah, yeah, it's, you know, Jamila, it's so hard because I get questions all the time. And the reason why I'm, I can't answer your question directly yeah, is because in my, in my experience, white people say, oh, Rachel, what can I do? And I'll literally say, no, oh, well, here's one or two things. And then they'll literally do those two things and be like, well, I did what Rachel Cargill told me to do. <laughs> and so it's a very, it's a a very individualized journey. I hate to say journey, but it's a very individualized journey to say, how am I going to show up? Like, just because I didn't hang someone today doesn't mean that I'm not racist. <laughs> yeah. It means that there are other ways that I yeah. need to show up as someone who is benefiting from a system that traditionally mm -hmm. in its fabric has oppressed black people. And what do I need to do to flip that system on its head? For sure. The only reason I asked that particular question is just because of the specific portion of it that relates to those who are very young or who will never be someone who is famous or in the public eye. It's mm -hmm. specifically just to those people of like, there is so much you can do that doesn't even involve going out to a march, that doesn't involve the retweets or doesn't involve the things that will kind of get you applause from other people who'll see that you are Absolutely. externally not, an, not a racist. Uh, there are so many things that you can do. Just, I mean, if you are too young to vote, there are ways that you can educate your parents who can vote or your grandparents, all these people around you and your community. There is so much you can do just on the ground level that if all of us did it I call it brick by brick activism that if all yeah. of us would participate on that even just on our in our periphery around us mm -hmm. we would completely change the world and we would do it so fast it's actually the lack of affect and I guess the people just thinking well you know I'm just little old me so I'm not mm -hmm. gonna bother because what difference could I make you can make a huge difference even just yeah, changing social one media. person's your life sorry go on social media has completely skewed our understanding of influence. Yeah. Um, when we consider the word influence, I think our minds go to social media and it goes to influencer. And this idea that only a few select people in the social media world are the ones making a difference and are the ones who get to shift 
society and shift opinion and shift knowledge. And while the role of influencers is absolutely clear in our society now, it doesn't change the fact that the word influence does not mean 10K plus followers. The word influence means the way that one person to another affects the way they move through the world. And that could be a parent to child, that can be classmate to classmate, that can be one person to their local school board. There's a million ways that you are individually an influencer to the people in your world and your platform is not a social media platform. Your platform is your kitchen table. Your platform is your church. Your platform is literally the spaces in which your voice is heard. And you have those spaces every day and you get to decide how you show up in those spaces Mm -hmm. with your intention to be anti-racist. Yeah. Your anti-racist footprint. I think if you're Mm -hmm. alive and breathing, then you can be helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to just touch a little bit further on what you were talking about with the history of white women, because I think one of the big arguments that we are still seeing even today, even after everything that's happened over the last couple of months, is just why do I have to be held responsible for the crimes of my ancestors when I'm not Mm -hmm. participating in that? I buy Beyonce's records. Why do I have to pay (laughs) for what they've done? And it's like, and something that I've seen you say many times in many places, because you get asked about this a lot, um, and so I won't make you repeat it, it was just the fact that until you yourself as a black woman are no longer having to pay for what happened to your ancestors at the hands of their ancestors, you're going to be holding them accountable to do the work to make sure that they are responsible for what's happened as well, because they are still benefiting actively yes, from a system that was the built reality. off the backs of your ancestors. That's the reality. They're still benefiting from it. And they're still, and like you said, this goes into the understanding of knowledge that these things are still trickling down into my generation. So just one very small example is considering wealth, considering land. So a lot of people, their wealth is resting within the land that they own, the property that they own, the houses that they own. For so long, Black people couldn't own houses in America. We weren't able Mm -hmm. to get land. We weren't able to deal with the racism that would push us out of spaces. And so if we just think of wealth, and it's so funny, I make a post often that gets a ton of pushback is maybe you manifested it, but maybe it's white privilege. And it's a critical, it it pushes people to consider critically how they got to the space they got and how race plays into it. Did your family have a slave plantation in which Black people built the majority of your wealth and then that wealth was hoarded within the property that you owned? And then your houses were, you know, passed down generation to generation. And now you all of a sudden have a wonderful um, generational wealth that's able to put you through college. And now you think that the you know, New York City apartment that your father pays the rent for while you go to NYU is a result of manifestation, but it's really a result of the generational wealth that has been Mm. passed on through generations that originally was built on the backs of Black people. And the descendants of those slaves who did build that white family's wealth, a lot of times they are just now in 2020 first generation college students who are finally able to go to school and have more of an opportunity. So there's all of these realities of American life that are rooted in what this nation was founded on, which is white wealth and free Black labor. And that was constantly translated into various forms, whether it was Jim Crow or segregation, police brutality, industrial prison complex. Everything is connected and we need to um, recognize that be held accountable and do what we can do to flip, completely break down a system that Mm -hmm. was never built for the 
livelihood of Black people in America. For sure. You said once that until white women come to terms with the fact that they oppress Black people just as much as men oppress them, there will be no progress. And that just went through the internet like a lightning bolt. Yeah, I think it's a tough pill to swallow for white women to consider the fact that they can both be oppressed and Mm -hmm. oppressors. But we all we all exist in that space. You know, people who, you know, are a full who don't have a disability Mm -hmm. that we if we're not actively looking around and saying, why isn't this place accessible? Even if we aren't dealing with the inaccessibility, we need to be allies and considerate. And if we're not, then we're being a part of a system that's complacent and not ensuring that people with disabilities have full access. Yeah. And so we it's a it's a pill that we all have to swallow, that we can both be that we can both be oppressed and the oppressor. Um and it is particularly seen I have viewed it and seen the results of it being a particularly difficult thing for white women to swallow as it applies to race. How the fuck do you deal with the pushback you get online? Because I get angry for you sometimes with the just sheer (sighs) ignorance that comes onto your page. And it is often from, and again, this is not us trying to bash white women. This is just trying to hold people accountable. And in fact, it's not only white women who, who participate in this on your feed. But people, what do you find to be the thing that most often people will, I don't know, I'm going to say quote unquote, clap back against you for that you find the most frustrating? Um, I think it's just that they think it's an attack, which is really silly because especially in this world of feminism, we're constantly holding men accountable and white women seem to understand the concept of holding men accountable to say like, I get that you weren't part of the founding fathers who made this patriarchal decision to do X, Y, Z, but still you're getting paid more than me when you shouldn't because just because you're a man and I'm a woman. So you need to be part of the solution. If I was to say that, then they're like, yes, men they get it. They understand mm-hmm. the role men play. But the moment I switch it into a race conversation, all of that clarity goes out the window and all of a sudden it's rocket science and something they don't understand. And they are completely hurt by the fact that I would even bring up race and the ways that they play into it. And so I think the most frustrating part is that I see so many white women who claim to be feminist and understand that oppression dynamic, but they refuse to apply the same exact things to race. And I give, I, I, there's one post that I make that gives many examples of this in the same ways that it's absolutely absurd that in the case of sexual assault for us to ever ask what the girl was wearing, because it doesn't matter what the girl was wearing. It doesn't matter I don't care if she was butt naked, that still doesn't Mm -hmm. constitute her deserving to be sexually assaulted. And that also plays into race. So when we see a Black man who has been a victim of police brutality and they ask, well, did he have weed in his pocket? Mm -hmm. Was drugs part of his past? I don't care if he had a trap house on his back while he was running down the street from the police. Like that doesn't mean that he deserved for the one white cop to be both the jury and the judge and kill him in the street for what he assumed he had done. And so there's these very clear translations between the understanding of feminism and the understanding of anti-racism work that it drives me crazy when white women can't make that connection. Or refuse to, I should say. I've never heard someone put it like that. So fucking, it's so clear. And I'm going to use that to explain it every time I see these frustrating examples. Uh, For anyone who would like 
to participate in watching uh, Rachel educate people. She has, uh, it's called The Great Unlearn. I'm correct. I'm following it. Yes, I have a, I have a online learning platform called The Great Unlearn. It's sits on Patreon, patreon.com um, backslash the great unlearn. And it's basically a um, dona- donation based and self paced learning experience. And my favorite part of it is that I bring in experts from academe and I bring them in to teach on these issues that we've always understood from a white gaze. So some of our first, um, some of our first, so I post a syllabus every month. Mm-hmm. Um, and the syllabus is a connection of things people can read, things people can write, or things people can read, they can watch and they can listen to. So articles, podcasts, um, documentaries, videos, um, just to give a clear introduction to a subject. Um, so one of our first and one of my favorite was the conversation of like the idea of race. Where did this concept of race come from and mm-hmm. how did we even get there? Um, and we bring a black expert who usually is within the space of academia, as I said, and I bring them in to teach us. And we get this really incredible um, experience of learning directly from someone who has, who refuses to use the white gaze as a barometer for understanding the world. And so it's, it's just an incredibly eye-opening experience. And it's called the great unlearn because it really is an opportunity to reimagine what we understand about the world outside of the colonial concept of whiteness. All of my white friends follow The Great Unlearn now and have learned awesome. so much about their own, often so such accidental microaggressions and so like just kind of inherent, they're not even aware of them, mm-hmm. they can't see them. And it has completely changed their vocabulary and the way they communicate with women of colour and black women. And so thank you for that. I, I hugely recommend people follow it because the way that Rachel will even uh, not only introduce us to great educators, but also will sometimes break down her discourse with someone who will maybe push back mm-hmm. against her and and write something down in a way that they think they are defending themselves or people who look like them. And Rachel would just very uh, academically break down, I would say, just you academically and factually break down their language, the coding in their language, and you, you, you kind of do it almost like a teacher. You have a red pen that you circle the words that are problematic <laughs> and you write number one, number two, number three, number four, and then you break it down in the post. And it's I just haven't seen anyone educate people that, that clearly and in a way where we can just all learn together. It's so beneficial and so cool. So definitely follow that. Um, how did you get into work as an activist? What drew you to this? Because this is hard work. This is emotionally taxing and exhausting, but ultimately I'm sure fulfilling work. Well, I always say that I did. I mean, I have 1.9 million followers right now and probably 70% of them are white women. Mm -hmm. And I always say like, this must be the work that has been passed down to me from my ancestors because nothing about my daily life was a call for white women to come listen to me talk about race. Like nothing in me was this, um, a plan of how I was going to show up in the world. And so, um, I, I truly believe that this is just part of my life's work that I was supposed to be doing. And I kind of got thrown into it. And then I feel like I was just given all the tools and the learning and the understanding and the gifts that I have in order to show up, um, in the way that I needed to show up. And like I said, it started when that photo went viral and I started to kind of be looked to as someone who could 
add to the conversation of race and feminism. And then it just turned into this community of people who were ready to listen and ready to learn and ready to um, insist on being anti-racist instead of just not racist. And um, I really say I... I teach as I learn. I'm in no way an expert. Like, just like you, I grew, I, I wasn't like the best little black feminist growing up. There was so much about my childhood that skewed my understanding of the world. I was the only black girl growing up in an all white neighborhood in a small Ohio town. I was the only black girl, you know, on my soccer team and my Girl Scout troop in the classroom. And so I had so much um, ingrained racism within me um, because of how I existed in the world. And the only thing I understood, most of what I understood was through the white gaze that I was existing in uh, with my schools and my neighborhood and things like that. And so did that make you, been, did that change like the way that you felt about your body or your features or your oh, hair? Oh, for sure. For background? sure. There's, there was, there were always so many questions about why I was different or what made me different or, and it wasn't different. I was always a fairly confident girl, but there were these little microaggressions and these little slights that made it clear that there was something about me that didn't put me at the same standard or level as the white girls around me. And um, the one example that I talk about often is that, you know, in middle school, when we start liking you know, getting interested in romantic partners. Mm -hmm. And there was a boy that I liked and um, everyone was getting a boyfriend or a girlfriend and they were kind of writing each other letters and sitting next to each other at lunch. And it was, you know, the, it consumed all of our days <laughs> figuring out who was dating who. And um, I was fairly liked as, you know, in school, I wasn't like nerd. I mean, I guess I was nerdy, but I was, I was fairly well known and well liked within my school. And um, right, no I need thought to brag. it would be. Ah! I wasn't very popular. <laughs> <laughs> Rub it in. Great, I, we get it. You were popular. You're great. No, Everyone I still wasn't. I wasn't you. at all popular. I wasn't at all popular, but I wasn't. No, I didn't have any horrible joking. bully situations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I felt pretty confident. Like, oh, okay. Well, let me see what boy I want to date. And there was a boy that I liked and who we had flirted with. I guess I assumed. I had assumed there were some social cues that he was giving me. And I very sorry. Hold on. <laughs> There's probably some more of her friends. A popular high school friends knocking at the door. Can't can't keep away from her for half an hour. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now listen, we all carry around different stresses, big, small, medium size, and a lot of us keep them bottled up because sometimes we just have to. But doing that all of the time can really, really start to negatively impact your life. And I say that from experience. I'm British. We are told to never say how we're feeling about anything ever. And uh, that's why so many of us are so sad. Now, a way that I was able to remedy that was by having therapy, which was super helpful for me, not only because it's amazing to get things off your chest, but also all week, you know, as you're bottling things up, because it's not always the time or place to say exactly how you feel, you know you're going to get that hour where you're able to get everything off your chest and say it exactly as you want to. And this therapist isn't going to take it personally and they're not going to hold it against you or throw it back in your face during an argument over dinner next week. You just have this complete freedom. Honestly, I think everyone should have therapy, regardless of whether they think they need it, because it's so amazing to have a confidant. It's a journal 
that talks back to you and helps you with all of your problems. I think therapy is just a safe space to get everything off your chest to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, then maybe you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be super convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and then you can switch therapists if you don't like them anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash iWay today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iWay. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well... Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Before all your friends came knocking at your door to tell you how much they love you. Uh, <laughs> finish the story. So, okay, so the boy, you think the boy fancies um, so you. I- Is this a white boy? Yes, it was a white boy. Okay. So I, I, yeah, I guess I had taken social cues and assumed that he liked me back. And so I, with all of my confidence, walked up to him and I said, can I be your girlfriend or whatever people asked? I don't even know what I said, but I know that I insisted that we date. And I remember he looked, he looked at me. And by the way, that's been me my whole life. I never stopped walking up to people and insisting we date, but <laughs> <laughs> he, um, he looked at me and he's like, Oh, Rachel, I like you, but I can't date you because you're black. <gasps> and I just remember being so confused about how that played into our love, <laughs> but also just, but also like in my gut knowing like, oh, I get it. Like, and, and that's the sad part of it. That little me knew that that was probably the case or that like, oh, okay, I get it. And so those types of things absolutely played into me having exposure to ways that my race was clearly going to be an issue for me in relating to the people around me, for sure. You've spoken to me before and you've spoken online about how now as an activist and as a grown woman, a woman who is, who is in love with her blackness and in love with her history and her past and the way that she looks and her body and the way that you enjoy yourself is something that I think we need to see so much more of on the internet. And I love the fact that you share that part of your life with us as well as the um, academia and Mm -hmm. the activism. Um, But you say that you listen to your inner child a lot now as an adult you're trying to reconcile that little girl with who you are now to draw guidance from Mm -hmm. her and I think that's really beautiful and it's something that I think I'm only starting to come to terms with in myself can you explain that to us yeah I mean there was so much boldness in who I personally was as a child I was like very confident very curious very like bold in exploring the world and what I 
what I believed I deserved as a little girl and what I like had so much excitement for in life. Um, and I pull from her a lot. Um, not just the younger girl that I was when I was maybe seven or eight who had all of this exuberance in the world. Um, but also just who I was, you know, six years ago when I moved to New York and was interested to see what I was capable of. And I mm -hmm. found out and I was willing to do everything and explore every way that I could show up in the world. And so, um, and I know that our younger selves aren't always a space of inspiration for people. Maybe that was a very trauma-filled child, or maybe that was a child who you who some people might not be able to connect with due to the circumstances. I think there's something incredibly healing about making a connection with our younger selves and getting the chance to parent ourselves in a way that we weren't parented or mm. be a friend to ourselves in the way that, that we didn't have friends or be the big sister that we didn't have. And so it's, it's just been a really healing exercise. And as I continue to share that with people, this practice of connecting to our younger selves, so many people have connected to it and it's been incredible to see and experience. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure I've said this before somewhere on this podcast, but I'm going to say it again, damn it. Um, I, <laughs> I've spent the last couple of years since my nervous breakdown about eight years ago, just trying to get back to who I was as a baby, because I believe that that's when we are perfect, is when we are infants, like when we are not self-conscious. We aren't self-conscious about the way that we look. Uh -huh. We don't notice differences between other people other than things that make us extra curious. We are so loving. We are demanding of our needs. We're like, I'm hungry. I'm lonely. I'm tired. Um, I, you know, I need a shit. Uh, we're very vocal about all of these things that we need. And as women and women of colour in particular, and as a black woman, that is definitely something that is uh, that we are shamed out of very early mm -hmm. in life. And I want to get back to her. For sure. We know how to ask for help. We don't feel embarrassed when yeah. we're learning. It's all natural for us to be curious. And I think, yeah, I just think there's something really powerful in giving ourselves the opportunity to meet and explore and rediscover who that person is and let them guide us. As well as I, I dream of and think of and get counsel from my older self as well. I consider who I will be because I can't look back at the younger me and say, thank you for where you've gotten me to this point without being conscious of one day in 30 years or 40 years that that person will be speaking to me. Who is older you? What's she like? Oh, you know, Jamila, with you hanging out oh, sure. at some beautiful garden party in a long, <laughs> flowy kimono and sipping rosé and talking about all of the incredible work we've been able to do in the world. I think that older me is a person who has found continuous spaces of comfort in who she is as a writer, as a Black woman, as a partner, mm -hmm. as a citizen, as an academic. And I'm just really excited to see the ways that I'm able, right now I'm able to celebrate what younger me has done to get me here. And I'm excited to celebrate me at a later time as well when I'm older. I cannot tell you how relieved I am to watch you beam and smile as you think of your older self, because I still think that I do. That we are I'm in... so obsessed with her. I love that. I love that. I am exactly <laughs> the same. Like, I don't want to touch anything on my face. I want to see my wrinkles. I love a little old Indian woman. Yeah. Love, love a little old Indian babe. Um, I want the white hair. Uh, I keep finding mm -hmm. little white, like very curly hairs randomly in my very straight head. And uh, whenever anyone tries to pluck one out, I'm like, no, 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 I need that. 
I need that. That's, that's <laughs> me. That, yeah. That's older me. She's coming. And, yeah. and it's so rare to find another woman who's also excited about aging because we're, we're taught oh, sure. that, that all of the juice is in the youth. And yeah. this perfectly takes me to my next point. Um, which is that, you know, I think part of that comes from the fact that we are valuable when we can procreate according to society. Mm -hmm. And once we can no longer uh, make children, make babies, then we are no longer valuable. And that's where the obsession on female youth comes from. And I wonder if perhaps part of the fact that you and I personally do not have an obsession or any feeling of obligation whatsoever towards having children, maybe that is what helps us explore the joy and the gratitude and even being able to age, something that people that we loved didn't even get to do. We nourish that opportunity. We'd like nurture that opportunity to get older and be wise and pass what we've learned on to younger people. I can't believe people get sad when they get a year older. I can't, I love every birthday because I'm so excited. Yeah. That's so interesting. I have never made that connection between the reason why we value you so much has a direct connection to this idea that it's in in those younger years of our womanhood that we're able to give birth. I've never made that connection, but that absolutely fits the bill of where a woman's value is held in being able to relish in motherhood. Mm -hmm. Um, And oftentimes they don't even give her the chance to relish in it because they demand that she go back to work immediately or they judge her for going back to work or they judge her for staying at home. So it's a very, it's a very interesting space, motherhood. And as someone who has been a nanny, a living nanny, full-time nanny for a long time before I was able to start writing and speak. Full time. Is that why you don't um, want I, have children? Well, I <laughs> always experience. it probably adds it probably adds to it. But I always <laughs> say that having that experience that I am making an educated decision. Like it's not just me saying like, oh, I think I just don't want it. And people can say, oh, they just don't want it. Mm-hmm. That is just as valid as me seeing and being part of the day to day of raising children and realizing that I would much rather sleep in on a Saturday if I want to than have to get up and take my three-year-old to Spanish class. Or, you know, I just don't find a deeper Very intense value. three-year-old, but yeah, yeah. go on. <laughs> I'm going to take my two-year-old to quantum physics school. Uh, (laughs) Anyone who's ever been a nanny in D.C. or New York, you know these three-year-olds are in Spanish class. I love that. Love a bilingual babe. Um, (laughs) Sorry. Um, But um, I I was able to make decisions and see, oh, this is the day-to-day of motherhood. Mm -hmm. This does not match my ideal day-to-day. So I'm just going to go ahead and make the decision not to explore that as part of my personal life journey. And it makes me... It, it it gives me personally and a lot of other people I've been connecting with on this topic the chance to indulge in the other relationships that we play into, um, into being, you know, showing up in really fun ways for the children that are in our lives as nieces and nephews or as little cousins or as neighbors or in other ways where um, I and I'm sure you too deeply value connections with children. Mm-hmm. I don't want to birth them, but I love them yeah, and I, I value really the care. connections. <laughs> Sorry. That's fine. fine. It's just, it's just the ways that this conversation isn't based around hating children. It's based around our own life day to day decisions. And so there's, there's so many ways that we can still make that a part of our lives or not a part of our lives. Mm -hmm. Um, and it not be rooted in disdain for anything or anyone. It's just, purely what I want doesn't match what we understand as the day-to-day journey of motherhood. Um, you have this Instagram account that is a fairly recent account called The Rich Aunties. 
It's called Rich Auntie Supreme. A Rich Auntie Supreme, that was it. Um, where <laughs> you have created this glorious, joyous space for women who have decided not to have children and therefore to share mm-hmm. the indulgence of their lives and all of the holidays that they're going on, you know, maybe during half term mm-hmm. and all the great Saturday yeah. nights out and all the ways that you can spend your money or spend your time and, and enjoy lovers and enjoy just endless freedom. And it is such a celebratory space for a woman's autonomy to just Mm -hmm. enjoy her life it's been so recent that we've even been given like vague permission to just enjoy ourselves or to earn any money or to have anything of our own or to have any kind of freedom we're only still working towards that really and so yeah damn straight if we don't want to now go into like another form of service for the rest of our lives if you want to that is wonderful and beautiful and i may still do that i'm gonna put my uh my 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 eggs on ice so that i can make that cho- choice yeah. when i'm in my 40s but for the next six years no fucking way no fucking way maybe <laughs> never because i yeah well my my mother had me when she was 40 so you could still have the option but for so right. many people in who who follow Rich Auntie Supreme and who engage it's really interesting cuz i i was looking through that page this morning and i realized that that's so much less of a social media page as a community like yes. people like there's hundreds of conversations it's really a conversation space and one of the themes that comes up so much is that women feel so much shame around both making the decision to not want children and then the benefits of it of like like, oh, am I allowed to sleep in this late? Am I allowed to spend this much money on a dress when, you know, my friends have to pay for daycare or have to consider, you know, what their children will be eating alongside them or making sure that they get to summer camp. So I think that it both is a space for people to be seen and heard in their decisions to say, wow, both I'm not the only one and I'm completely valid in this decision. One of my favorite posts was one where you asked your community, like, what is one of the number one things that people use to try to talk you into having children? And Uh someone brought up the whole kind of well, who's going to take care of you when you're old? Right. And, and how weird. First of all, that's what, what weird. A crazy reason. That's so weird and selfish. That's <laughs> so weird. I know. It's so weird. <laughs> I know. Um, but also, someone was like, I don't know, someone's son? It's going to look after right. me when I'm a child who I had, literally. <laughs> My lover, hopefully. Um, but I do think that it's wonderful to see a celebration of that. And again, this is zero shaming whatsoever. I may still be a mother one day. I have no idea. But currently, it is just so recent for me to find other women to be able to have this conversation with of just like, I might not. And also, this is a fucking horrible world that I don't know if I have the courage personally, to steer someone else through. <laughs> I'm so bad at Literally I'm that. so bad at life in the world. <laughs> I don't know if I can effectively guide some, another girl through it. I'm afraid. It's so, it's so interesting to hear you say, and everyone uses this language to say, oh, I might change my mind later because people are constantly telling us, you might change your mind, you might yeah, change yeah. your mind. But the crazy thing is no one ever says that to women who have kids. Like, are you sure you want to have kids? You might change your mind because yeah, that's yeah. the real issue. Yeah, like yeah. the real issue is if a woman has kids and she wants to change her mind, that's where the, it's not the concern of someone who says they don't. And then they decide to, that's yeah. a pretty positive experience of, oh, I've prepared <laughs> yeah. myself and now I'm yeah. ready to fully invest in this. I think we really should be asking like, are you sure you want to have kids? You might change your mind. Because oh my that's, God. It, it's just another way of, you know, deciding what women do with their bodies. I can't believe how much people try and talk me into having children versus when I had an abortion, how much people try to talk me out of it. 
I was like, it's there so should be, I, and I, by the way, at the time I was financially entirely unstable. I was so mentally ill. I was not in the right relationship. I was not in the right space uh-huh. in my life. I was right in the middle of my dreams. Uh, I was nowhere near where I wanted to be. And I had such a specific plan of what I wanted to do. And I wasn't ready. And no yeah. one was taking into all of these very clear factors. And I explicitly didn't want a child, which is also a very yeah, important thing because so- I mean, you're going to resent them anyway, often because they're very difficult and, and, and fulfilling and amazing, but also very, very tricky. And it's a huge response, the biggest responsibility. Mm-hmm. But so if you already go into it, not wanting it and resenting its existence, this, the, that is a recipe for potential true disaster. And yet the amount of people who with all of these factors clearly out there, everything I was advocating for myself, they were still unsure mm-hmm. if I was making the right decision and yet my <laughs> for decision, yourself <laughs> exactly and so I was wondering do you think there's an added pressure on uh black and Indian and women of color uh do you think that there's an added pressure on us to procreate from our communities because I definitely feel that from a South Asian background it's like family is everything mm. community is everything there's safety in numbers I think that's also a small part of it it's not just about mm. building your lineage and having something to pass mm. everything down to and dowries etc you know I think there's a, a lot of pride in continuing a bloodline etc um but but I also think that there is a bit of a kind of like you know we'll be safe if there's as many of us as possible yeah I I hear that that's not something that's not something I considered. And I personally never felt that it was an extra pressure because of that. And actually I, I don't get pressure from my personal family. Really. Right. That's not from my, from my immediate family. Um, but it, yeah, I, I've never considered that, but I totally hear you. And I think that in some particular cultures, like you said, your Indian culture, a lot of, um, African countries in their cultures, it's, it's not just a, expectation. It's like a family demand. Like it's, it's, it's more than, hoping for it, people are expecting it. And I absolutely can see that in, in lots of, in lots of color in communities of colors for sure. I definitely feel like there's a messaging amongst my community that like, it would be a disrespect to my ancestors to not carry on my bloodline. But as far as I'm concerned, yeah. I consider all of my people, my family. Well, it's and like, that's, we that's are a conversation of legacy. Yeah. Like what is, what will your legacy be if you don't mm-hmm. have children? And it's like, my legacy, my goodness in the world isn't predicated on whether I have birthed someone or not. And we, and that's also very selfish for me to think that my mm-hmm. children will have some responsibility in carrying on any of the interests that I have. A hundred percent. I mean, sadly for me, I think my legacy is going to be that video I made um, shitting fire on the <laughs> toilet uh, when I was trying to make a point about uh, the dangers of diet and detox teas and how really they're just laxatives. Uh, so I really actually also wouldn't necessarily want anyone to have to inherit that legacy in particular. I think perhaps my bloodline should stop with me uh, <laughs> and all of the bad tweets that happened. Um <laughs> That is so funny. <laughs> so it's uh, also wonderful to have someone who isn't too tied to their legacy. <clears throat> Moving on. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen, remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, 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 of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well... 
Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. talk to me about the Loveland Foundation please that is another one of you're so fucking busy you've done so much it's so intimidating tell me about the bloody Loveland Foundation now please Rachel make us all feel worse about ourselves and more fucking useless. oh my gosh Jamila you're so funny um the Loveland Foundation is just another thing that kind of came up unexpectedly for me mm-hmm. I was in 2018 2018, I believe. I I remember distinctly, I was nannying at the time and I had just dropped the little girl I was nannying off at school. And earlier in the day, I had gotten the chance to uh, have therapy, um, a therapy session. And I remember like after dropping her off at like her after school program, I was walking down, I think like 86th street or something. And I just felt deeply that I wished other black women had the opportunity to experience the clarity that I had felt that day from therapy, from that therapy session. And um, my birthday was coming near. And so I remember walking into a Starbucks, sitting down and creating a GoFundMe. um, And I wanted to raise money to pay for Black women and girls to go to therapy. Like I wanted to pay off their bills, like go to therapy, send me your invoice and I'll pay it off. I very naively thought that that was going to be a thing. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I started the fundraiser. Um, I put it up on my Instagram. At the time, I think I had probably 10,000 followers and um, maybe like 7,000 actually. And that night, um, within 24 hours, we raised $10,000 for the fund. And I realized that this was something people were willing to invest in and something that people connected with. And it was just incredible to see the investments into this pour in. And within um, within six months, I think we had $250,000 and I was able to bring on professional nonprofit staff, people who were able to develop the systems and people who were able to really assist me in making sure that this was done and done right. Mm-hmm. And the foundation has been um, able to, it's been, um, you know, years now since we started and the foundation has been able to serve hundreds and hundreds of black women and girls and getting them connected to therapists who look like them and who experience the world like them, who are able to relate more directly to the experience of Black women and girls and also um, allow them to get all of this incredible support for free um, with all the donations that are made. And so it's been such an incredible journey from me just having, it's so wild to see an idea come to life and to come to life in such a meaningful way. And so Mm -hmm. I'm so grateful for the Loveland Foundation and the team and the partners that we've had, especially this year. Um, We've gotten so much support and it's just been such an incredible opportunity to offer this resource to my community. I want to ask another question because within the South Asian community, again, there's a lot of shame around needing therapy, around mental Mm -hmm. health issues, around uh, admitting to trauma that we take pride in stoicism. And I was wondering if you find that within your own community or if that's maybe changing because we are modernizing as a generation. Uh, absolutely. It was a huge stigma within the Black community, particularly in the Afri- African-American community. There's this um, understanding that 
there has been over the generations, this understanding that therapy means you've reached rock bottom or that you have no more control over yourself and someone has to come in and help you. Um, or even that therapy is an irrational choice when religion should be your first go-to when it comes to any type of mental health support. And so, um, it is a new conversation within the black community to say therapy is okay. You can love Jesus and go to therapy. You can um, use therapy not as a last resort, but as an ongoing maintenance of self in the same way that we work out our bodies in the same ways that we take a bath every day in the same ways that we, um, you know, take multiple courses. It's a way for you to maintain your continuous well-being mm-hmm. as opposed to it being a toolbox for when you're broken. And I also have a lot of conversations that it's really nice to have a therapist who you can talk to about your wins also, who can help you process when things are going really well. I I think anyone will admit to the times when things are going really well and we're like, "Uh uh-uh, this is way too good. Like, and we begin to question why things are going well. Mm -hmm. So it's not always, therapy isn't always the space you go to where you're breaking down crying and trying to figure out where everything went wrong. It's also a space to process the normal and good stuff that's happening as well. So we kind of, the, one of my favorite images of therapy is when you go in and you're, and there's like a knot in your head and by time you're out, it's a smooth line. It's this way for us to process whatever it is, whatever it is in our mind, whether something good or bad, it's a third party who is trained to give us the tools to um, find clarity in what we're experiencing in life. And everyone deserves that. I agree. Also, everyone deserves someone to tell all of their darkest secrets to who won't use it against them in an argument yeah, true. Like three years yes. later. Because it's very yes. dangerous, very dangerous <laughs> to say some of the thoughts in your head to someone who could uh, betray so you in your most vulnerable moment. <laughs> it sounds like you need therapy for that particular yeah, yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I need uh, I need somewhere to bury all my skeletons, Rachel. <laughs> Who's not going to toss a for bone sure. back at I me absolutely... in the most unexpected moment? <laughs> I absolutely agree. I, that alone is a value in therapy. Uh, 100% judgment-free secret telling um no I have a, a friend who is a young black therapist and she she is she's so new to to this I mean she's only been doing it three or four years and almost from within the minute she started has been fully booked for four years and she's only 27 mm-hmm. and this is because there is such a desperation for more therapists who actually look like the young people who are seeking out therapy mm-hmm. we he, it, it's apparently I mean she's told me that the convention she goes to you know for therapists and psychiatrists are just like it's all like mm-hmm. older particularly like predominantly white men straight white men yeah. who are, yeah. you know, who were the leading thinkers and writers and, mm-hmm. and uh, speakers in this space. And so, you know, also I think that people have traditionally, and God knows we're just learning, you know, as a as a culture about how this exists within the m- medical space, but I don't think mm-hmm. people have ever thought about mental health as something that people of colour, in particular black people, go through. You know, because of this idea mm-hmm. that black people are so strong and like unbreakable. And these are thoughts that go back all the way. This is, you know, a rhetoric that traces back all the way back to slavery to justify the dehumanization and, you know, mm-hmm. impossible amount that was piled onto human beings uh, just because of their skin color. And so, you know, I, I think a lot of people look at something like eating disorders or mental health issues or suicidal ideation as, as a white issue because... Those are the film characters that we saw. Those are the people mm-hmm. in the campaigns, in the posters, in the pamphlets. And so to me, like, and I never even thought that it was something that was impacting me. I didn't know I was mentally ill until I was 27 
when I had a full nervous yeah. breakdown well, because like I just we, thought we of don't it know as her. a yeah. I never saw people like me, you know, partially because of the fact that we whitewash mental illness, but partially because of the huge amount of shaming and silencing mm-hmm. of it within my own community. Yeah. And, I, and it all plays it all plays into each other. This is an intersectionality in itself of seeing mm-hmm. the ways that race plays into so many areas of our lives, yeah. mental health, of you know, like you said, eating disorders, um, feminism, you know, education. There's so many ways that this has to be considered because it's what this country was built on. It's what this country was built around. Yeah. Valuing and catering to the existence of the white cis het male and everyone else is is just trying to exist in various ways and so I'm glad you brought that up because it's very true that there's so many spaces that black people people of color aren't even allowed to breathe into because even in a space of mental health we don't feel like we have space we don't Mm -hmm. feel like we belong we don't feel like we're deserving of something because the world has shown us that we're not or that we don't you know have the chance you know you don't have time to have a mental illness. You have to try to figure out how you're going to pay your rent. You mm-hmm. don't have time to consider whether your child, you know, might have an eating disorder because you just want them to get through a school system that is doing everything they can to break them. And so it's really critical and very empowering for Black women and girls, these people who are within the Loveland Foundation to say, not only do I deserve mental health care, I deserve it from someone who looks like me and I'm able to, and I deserve to get it for free from, for some one from someone and from an organization that is working to get it to me. And one of my favorite parts about the Loveland Foundation, being able to be the president of an organization that both caters to the black women and girls who need the therapy, but also everyone wins because we are connected where we have collaborations with lists of black therapists throughout the country. And so we're getting those black therapists paid. We're able to connect them to clients. We're able to pay their bills with our, with the generations that have come to us. So in this, this is a trifecta of Black women winning, both me being able to create a wildly meaningful organization, the Black women and girls being able to get the therapy they need and deserve, and the Black therapists to be able to get paid well for the work that they're doing. Amazing. Well, if you are a young Black woman who is struggling with your mental health currently, then please look up the Loveland Foundation if you haven't yet heard of it. And if you are not a young Black woman or a an old black woman or any other kind of black woman, (laughs) the rest of us, uh, please look up this foundation and donate to it and figure out ways that you can support and let your friends know about it. Because I think it is truly, truly one of the coolest organisations I've ever seen. Um, Thank you. Okay. Well, I've taken up loads of your time and you're very, very busy. Rachel Cargill, (laughs) my absolute hero. Will you tell me, what do you weigh? Ooh, you know what? You know what's so wild, Jamila? I didn't what? know this. This was a question on your podcast, but it's so crazy. My, I, I moved back home to be with my mother and she's had so many doctor's appointments. Mm. And every time I go, I'm tempted to weigh myself. It burns in the back of my head to crave it, to want to know. And with your, with your Instagram page and seeing all the shares that you make of people listing what mm-hmm. they, you know, all of their qualities that they weigh, it's so wild that I wish that while we walk through the world, we crave to know those things instead. We crave to know mm-hmm. what are the things that we love about ourselves as opposed to what society is asking from us in those numbers and it, and thinking about how I literally would sit in the back of the doctor's office, like, should I go? Should I find, find out? What am I curious about myself? Like, what will it mean when that number pops up? Mm-hmm. It, 
I wish that curiosity was, I don't know, was born out of me in the same way to figure out all of those other things. But I weigh curiosity. Mm -hmm. I weigh enchantment. I weigh adventure. And I weigh the weights of everything I love about my older self and my younger self. Yay. We love. Thank, Thank you. you so much. I um I adore you. And this was so fun. And uh you're just so clever and great and I wish I was more like you. <laughs> so enjoy your rose. Oh and I Thank uh, you. and I hope uh that everyone has enjoyed this and will go on to follow you and learn from you alongside me. And I'm grateful for your existence. And I can't wait to hang out with your older self I know. in a garden <laughs> yes. eating cheese. I can't express to you how much this is on my agenda already. It's in my calendar. Right. We're for manifesting it. In, in 50, yes. In 20 years, the garden will be in. I'm putting it on my calendar today. I can't wait. Thank you so much for listening to this week's I Weigh. I would also like to thank the team which helps me make this podcast. My producers, Sophia Jennings and Kimmy Lucas, my editor, Andrew Carson, my boyfriend, James Blake, who made the beautiful music you are hearing now, and me for my work. At I Weigh, we would love to hear from you and share what you weigh at the end of this podcast. You can leave us a voicemail at 1-818-660-5543 or email us what you weigh at iweighpodcast at gmail.com. And remember, it's not in pounds and kilos. It's your social contributions to society or just how you define yourself in life. And now we would love to pass the mic to one of our listeners. I weigh my mixed race heritage and multicultural upbringing that has enriched and continued to enrich my life in so many ways. I weigh the music that I write and produce as a woman of colour, still in a very white and male-dominated music industry. I weigh my willingness to learn and to constantly challenge any internal biases that society forces upon us. I weigh my luck and my gratefulness to be alive. And I weigh my love for doggos. Thank you, Jamila, for creating this wonderful community. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because I got a charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh, hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.